Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. And we're going to start in verse 26. I'm just going to start reading verse 26. So Hebrews chapter 7, and we'll start reading in verse 26. Hebrews 7, verse 26. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we commune with you through your word, as your son speaks by his spirit through the preaching of the word to his people, we ask that you would give us ears to hear what the spirit is saying to the churches. We ask that we would understand that our great need is you. And that the high priest who brings us to you, who mediates between us, is Jesus. He's the priest we need. Pray that you would help us to understand your word as it's been written by the author of Hebrews to the church for all ages. We ask that you would apply it to our own minds and hearts, that we would be comforted and that we would look to Christ more and more. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, what do you uh, need most right now? What do you need most right now? I've, I've been thinking about that as we counsel people, as we watch what's happening in our society and culture um, currently. And I think one of the things that we begin to think that we need most right now um, is the economy to open back up. Or perhaps what we need most right now is the kind of um, governmental leaders that we think are sane versus some that we are not quite certain about. Maybe what we need most right now is, is our health to be protected or secured. Maybe what we think we need most right now is, is for our marriage to be the marriage we hoped it would be or for our children to turn out in the way that we might hope they would turn out. Or There's, there's a myriad of things that I could list that we might think we need most right now. But Augustine said many hundreds of years ago what we need most right now. Augustine said that, that our heart will not rest until it finds our rest in thee. He was praying that, obviously, to the Lord, knowing that, that the Lord is what we need most right now. We need union and communion 
with the Lord. We need that with him. Here's the difficulty, though. Though God is ever near to us because he created us and he provides for us, he sustains us, he preserves us, he governs us, he is ever near to us, we know there is this chasm between God and us that has been created by our sin, our immorality, our rebellion against God's law has caused this chasm by which we, through which or over which we cannot traverse in and of ourselves. We can't close the distance. We can't close the distance with our good works. We can't close the distance with external religious ceremonies. We can't close the distance um, with therapy. We can't close the distance with any of those things. The only way the distance can be closed is if there is a mediator between God and us. If there is someone, a high priest, who stands between God and us as sinners and makes mediation for us. In the last several weeks, we have been discussing Jesus as the high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And this morning, we will continue to look at that um, theme and really looking at the conclusion of the argument and looking expressly at why it matters. In other words, what we get in Hebrews 7, 26 through 28 is essentially the tying together of everything we've learned about Jesus as the high priest. We get that tied together with, if you will, the great implications of it. And, and here's what we, we learn. The author of Hebrews has been belaboring this point about Jesus being our high priest since the end of Hebrews chapter 4. And he's been belaboring it because he wants us to understand that Jesus is the high priest we need. That what we need above all other needs is Jesus. We need him to go between us and God so that we are able to have union and communion with the Lord. That's what we were designed for. That's what was lost at the fall. And that's what Jesus has come to restore. Jesus is the high priest we need. Look at Hebrews 7 and verse 26. For it was indeed, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. Now that can be translated um, in a way that's rephrased a bit to help it maybe come home for you a little bit more. It, it, we can accurately translate it this way. Such a high priest. The high priest we've been talking about in Hebrews 7 and in Hebrews 6 a bit and in Hebrews 5 and at the end of Hebrews 4, that high priest, Jesus, the high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, such a high priest, that kind of high priest, this high priest was exactly fitting for us. He was the high priest that we need. That's what he's saying. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. He's the high priest we need. He is fitting for us. Such a high priest is the fitting answer to our predicament as fallen men. Jesus is the high priest we need. Now I want us to see how Jesus is the high priest we need in verses 26 and 27 and 28 this morning. And I want you to see that really in, in three points. One, Jesus is the high priest we need with regard to his person. 
with regard to his character, his holiness, his innocence, his blamelessness. He is the high priest we need with regard to his person. That's verse 26. Second, we're going to look at the fact that Jesus is the high priest we need with regard to his work. The atoning work on the cross, the work that Jesus did on our behalf so that we would have forgiveness of sins and be reconciled to God. He is our high priest according to his work as well. So he is fitting for us in his person, verse 26. He is fitting for us in his work, verse 27. And third, he is fitting for us in his office, his office as priest. He did what none of the other priests before him could do. He perfected his people. He mediated for us eternally. He brought us and restored us to union and communion with God. So his person, verse 26, his work, verse 27, and his office, verse 28. Let's look first at his person. Jesus is the high priest we need in his person. Again, look at verse 26. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Notice that he's saying he's, it's fitting that we should have such a high priest. He is the high priest with regard to his person, and by his person, he is a fitting person to be our high priest. Um, and what he, I mean by that is in his purity of character. We're actually given five descriptions of him there. Five descriptions, and I want to look at those five descriptions just in order. The first one will take a bit longer than the others, but I want to look at those five descriptions. Look at them. Verse 26 again, for it was indeed fitting that we should have a high, such a high priest, holy. That's the first one. He is holy. Now, I want to argue that the word holy here, in fact, the Greek term being used here and the way it's being used by the author of Hebrews, is referring to his perfect covenant faithfulness, that he has been faithful to God's covenant. God communes with man by way of a covenant. He does it by covenant. God created Adam. And then when he placed Adam in the garden, he made a covenant with Adam, a covenant of works, by which Adam would commune with God and God would commune with Adam. And he told Adam, essentially, to sum up that covenant, do this and live. Violate this, disobey, rebel, and you will die. If Adam was obedient to God's commands, if Adam was obedient to the covenant stipulations, then he would have enjoyed the blessing of fellowship with God forever, of communion with him forever. But Adam disobeyed, and therefore Adam merited death, separation from God, cursing. So God made a second covenant with man, a covenant of grace. God said essentially in this covenant, I will do this so that you will live. In the first, do this and live. In the second, I will do this so that you will live. Note the difference. God will send the seed of the woman to bring blessed eternal life and communion with him. God progressively revealed that covenant of grace, starting at Genesis 3.15, 
and throughout the Old Testament. He provided the substance of that covenant clearly with Abraham when he promised to Abraham, I will be your God and you will be my people. I will bless you. I will dwell with you. I will commune with you. And God commanded certain proper responses to the enjoyment of those covenant promises. But he also swore a self, a, excuse me, a self maledictory oath. What do I mean by that? He basically said, God said in Genesis 15, if this covenant is broken, I will suffer death. I will suffer the curse. I will be torn to pieces, not you. God then gathered Abraham's offspring as a nation. He made them fruitful, and they multiplied, and they became a nation, and he gave them a temporary, national, typological covenant, a pointing-forward covenant, to govern them as they waited for the Christ, the seed of Abraham and the seed of the woman. And when God made this covenant with the people, the people promised to obey. And in Exodus 24, 8, we read that Moses took the blood of the animals and threw it on them. In other words, if they broke this covenant that was made with them at Mount Sinai, then they deserve the death penalty. But this covenant, please hear this, did not replace, did not replace the promises he gave to Abraham. It didn't abrogate those promises. That covenant with Moses was a temporary provision. And under that covenant with Moses, God made a covenant with King David. He would have a son who would be the Messiah and who would rule and reign forever. He, David's son, would redeem God's people. He would save them. He would come as the suffering servant and the triumphant king and he would cut a new covenant in his own blood. He would deliver fully and finally on the covenant promises given to Abraham. He would cut this new covenant in his own blood. Now, I tell you this, to drive at the point about the use of the word holy here in Hebrews 7, you might wonder, that was a lot to get to the use of this word, but I want you to see that because what I want you to understand is God is often in the Old Testament called the Holy One precisely to emphasize that God is faithful to his promises. Now, that's not the only use of the word holy with regard to God, but that is one of the uses of the word holy with regard to God. God made promises, and God kept them. Thus, God is called the Holy One of Israel. But here in Hebrews, um, this word holy is also pointing to that same covenant faithfulness. Remember, God's people had sinned um, under the kings. In in that era of their history, they had sinned. They had turned to idolatry. They had followed after the paganism of the wicked nations surrounding them, and they were exiled. And in Isaiah, we learn about the reason for that judgment and exile. And in Isaiah chapters 40 through 66, we hear this promise of a coming restoration for Israel, a coming new covenant, a coming Messiah, a coming suffering servant who would redeem God's people, who would himself be a covenant for the people. Look with me at Isaiah 55, because I'm, going to get to, I'm getting to this to give you this understanding of the use of this word holy. 
Isaiah 55 and verse 1. Isaiah 55 and verse 1. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligent to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear, and come to me. Hear, that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love, for David. Now in Isaiah 53, that uh, 55, sorry, Isaiah 55 verse 3, that word when he says I will make with you an everlasting covenant, he's pointing forward to the new covenant in Christ. That word after that follows my steadfast, that word steadfast and then sure love for David. That word steadfast is the Hebrew word hesed. That Hebrew word hesed um refers to God's covenant kindness and faithfulness. In the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament that was translated a couple hundred years prior to Christ, that word, hesed in the Hebrew, was translated with the Greek word that we have in our text in Hebrews chapter 7, the Greek word for holy. That was the word that was used. That same Greek word in that Greek translation is picked up in Hebrews 7, 26, when it says he is holy. He is the one who is covenantally faithful. Now, that's not the only place that that word hesed is translated as holy. Look at Psalm chapter 16, or Psalm 16. Mikey actually did us a favor by starting there this morning um, in our time of prayer and scripture reading. But look at Psalm 16. And look at verse 10. This is a psalm of David. Psalm of David. For you, Psalm 16, verse 10, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One, that again is that Hebrew word hesed, that word that we have in Greek, um, that's translated Greek in the Septuagint, your Holy One, see corruption. That Holy One is the same Hebrew word as in Isaiah 55.3, and in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, is the same Greek word as in Isaiah 55.3, and it's the same Greek word that we get in Hebrews 7.26 when it says he is holy. Now, we know that in Acts 2, Peter says that Psalm 16, verse 10, is not actually about David. It's about the Christ. That Christ is the Holy One who will not see corruption. Jesus is the covenantally faithful one. He is the Christ, the Messiah, who kept God's covenant faithfully, perfectly. Now, I want you to see this because actually both of these texts in Isaiah 55.3 and Psalm 16.10 are brought together by the Apostle Paul when he preaches the gospel. So look at Acts 13. Acts 13. In Acts chapter 13, I want you to see in verses 34 
and 35, as Paul is preaching the gospel, what is said there? He's just quoted in, in Acts 13 from Psalm 2, saying that that's about Jesus. You are my son, today I have begotten you. And then he goes on in verse 34, Acts 13 and verse 34, and says this, And as for the fact that he raised him, that being Jesus, from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken this way, I will give you the holy and sure pl- blessings of David. That's from Isaiah 55.3. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one, Psalm 16.10, see corruption. See, Paul brings together the passage in Isaiah 55.3 and in Psalm 16.10 and says David was not the holy one. David was not the one through which really covenant faithfulness occurred. He could not have been. Jesus was the one who was covenantally faithful. Jesus was the Holy One. Only the eternally begotten Son, Psalm 2, which is referenced there, who took humanity to himself, the second Adam, the true Israel, the seed of the woman, the offspring of Abraham, the son of David, the Messiah, the Christ, only he is the one who kept God's covenant in perfect faithfulness And therefore, only he is the Holy One. He kept the covenant perfectly. He kept every single precept of the covenant perfectly. He was faithful and obedient to the Lord. He is holy. He kept both the precepts of God's law and he took the penalty of God's law for us. He became the curse for us. He was cut to pieces so that God's covenant might be fulfilled. The blood thrown on Israel in Exodus 24, 8, which was their promise that their blood would be poured out for covenant and faithfulness, that was poured out by him for the sins of the many. Israel had violated the covenant. They had broken it. And Jesus paid the price. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. You see how he's fitting for you? He is the priest you need. He is holy. Verse 26 of Hebrews 7 again. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest Holy, innocent. Notice that word, second word, innocent. So he's holy, covenantally faithful. He is innocent. That could also be translated blameless. It's actually a negation. It's it's, it's actually a word that would maybe be better stated in the Greek, without evil, without sin, blameless. He committed no immorality. He was not guilty. God's holy and righteous law was never violated by him. He was the only man and the only priest to ever be without any guilt for moral wrongdoing. He did nothing evil ever in thought or in deed. He was perfectly moral. He was tempted in every way, 
yet without sin. He was the righteous one. He was the only man who could ever stand before the bar of God's justice. And in and of himself, on the basis of his own holy life, innocent life, sinless life, be declared righteous. And yet, he took our guilt. He received the verdict, guilty, cursed, condemned, at the cross, in our place. We were the guilty ones. He was the innocent one. We were the unrighteous ones. He was the righteous one. Yet he traded places with us. He is fitting for us. Third, look at verse 26. For it was indeed fitting that, he sh- we should ha- that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent. Notice the third term, unstained. Unstained. That, that language reminds us, if you're familiar with your Old Testament, of the Levitical requirements that both the priests and the sacrifices they bring be unblemished, unstained, undefiled. The Old Testament priests, the Levitical priests, the priests that come after Aaron, they were defiled by their own sin. They were stained. They were stained with sin. They had to make offerings, give sacrifices, first for their own sins and defilement. But Christ was not and is not defiled by sin. He was born without corruption or guilt, and he remained holy innocent, and unstained his whole life. He was the only one who could enter God's holy dwelling as unstained by sin. He was the only one properly clothed for God's holy presence. Yet he bore our stains upon himself. He was clothed with our filthy sinful, defiled rags at the cross. And he clothed us with linens, blood-washed linens, white and glorious, undefiled and unstained. He's fitting for us in that he is holy, innocent, unstained. Look at the fourth term, separated from sinners. Separated from sinners. The point here is that he was not and is not a sinner. He was born in the likeness of sinful flesh, but he was never himself a sinner. He wasn't born a sinner, nor did he ever sin. Further, the point is not, the point is not that he avoided the company of sinners. He was a friend of sinners, but that he himself was not a sinner. John Calvin says it this way. He is described as separated from us, not because he rejects us from his society or his company, but because he is uniquely distinguished from us in that he is free from all defilement. And why does that matter? Why is that fitting to our need? Listen to what John Owen says. He was every way in the perfect holiness of his nature and his life, distinguished from all sinners. And so it became us that he should be 
He that was to be a middle person between God and sinners was to be separate from those sinners in that thing on the account whereof he undertook to stand in their stead. So Jesus, your high priest, is holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and finally, look, at he's fitting as our high priest, finally, look, because he is and exalted, last phrase, and exalted above the heavens. This speaks to Christ's resurrection, his exaltation and ascension, and his glorification in the heavens. Look at Hebrews 4 and verse 14. Hebrews 4 and verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our Confession, he has passed through the heavens and he is exalted above the heavens. Look at Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 19. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. See, Jesus has gone to heaven on our behalf, he is ever interceding for us there. Sovereign grace, Jesus is fitting to be your high priest because he, has, he answers every need you have in his person. From his incarnation to his exaltation, he has answered it all. Now, I've already spoke in this point about his atoning work and sort of stolen my own thunder, if you will, but but I want to look briefly at his work. So in his character, in his person, he fits what we need. In his work, he fits what we need. So Jesus is the high priest, second point, Jesus is the high priest we need in his atoning work. Look at verse 27. Verse 27, Hebrews 7 and verse 27. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then for those of the people. Since he did this once for all, when he offered up himself. Know, know what's being said here. First, he has no need, like those high priests, the Old Testament high priests, the Levitical high priests, he has no need like them to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins. He has no need of that. He's really extending the application from the last verse. He wouldn't have a need to offer, offer anything daily for his sins because he has no sin. He's holy. He is innocent. He is unstained. He is separated from sinners. He is exalted above the heavens. He has no sin for which he needs to offer sacrifices for himself. The Old Testament priests and even the high priests needed to offer sacrifices for their own sins. Those men were fallen. They were corrupted and guilty in Adam. Those men were covenantally unfaithful. They were unholy, unrighteous, defiled sinners. But Jesus was not like them in that. He was exalted above the heavens. They went to the grave. He was not like them in any of that. Second, he has no need to daily offer sacrifices for the sins of the people. Look what it says. Not only does he have no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sin, 
but he sins, but he doesn't. He also doesn't have to offer sacrifices for the sins of the people. Why? Since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. You see, Jesus has no need to daily offer sacrifices for the sins of his people since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Please grasp this. Jesus offered up himself. He was not only the unblemished high priest, he was also the unblemished sacrifice. And we'll look at that more in Hebrews 8 through 10. His blood was poured out for the many. All those animal sacrifices in the Old Testament that those priests poured the blood out of, all those animal sacrifices ministered the grace of Christ through faith by the Spirit as types and shadows. But only the sacrifice of Christ could purchase that grace that was being administered. Christ's blood is the only blood that atones for sins in and of itself. At the cross, Jesus finished that atoning work. He paid the penalty due to you and me for our sins. He took the curse of God upon himself. He became defiled, stained, and guilty for us. And he declared, it is finished. It is completed. It is perfected. The debt is paid in full. So Jesus is the high priest we need in his person, and Jesus is the high priest we need in his atoning work. There's nothing we can add to what he's done, nor that we would ever need to add to what he's done. Third, Jesus is the high priest we need in his office. So he's the high priest we need in his person, he's the high priest we need in his work, and he's the high priest we need in his office. Look at verse 28. Hebrews 7, verse 28. For the law appoints men, that's speaking of the Mosaic covenant, appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, that's speaking of the promise the Father made to the Son before the foundation of the world. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The promise that is historically revealed in Psalm 110 and verse 4, the word of the oath, which came later than the law, that's the point, it came later than the law, in that you had Moses' covenant given first in Exodus, really 19 through 24, and then you have the historical revelation of the oath the Father made to the Son before time. You have that historically revealed in Psalm 110 and verse 4 in the ministry, if you will, of David as he writes that psalm by the Spirit. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Now, I won't spend much time here really on this point as I've spent several weeks on the office of Christ as the high priest. I would encourage you to go back and listen to those sermons. He holds that office of high priest after the order of Melchizedek. He is the high priest who holds his office on the basis of an indestructible life. He is the high priest to whom the Father eternally spoke the oath. You will be priest forever, according, or you are, sorry, priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. He is the high priest who is the God-man. He is the son who has been made perfect, if you notice that, the son who has been made perfect forever. Now, that doesn't mean, 
I, I, I want to un unwind a bit of a misunderstanding. When it says that he is the son who's been made perfect forever, that doesn't mean that as the son, at some point in time, according to his person or his character, he was imperfect. If that were the case, nothing I said in verse 26, as I went through that, would have been true. In fact, verse 26, you could just scratch it out because he was perfect as to his character as a person. What that's saying when it says he's been made perfect forever is it's saying he perfected the office of high priest. He received the vocation, the calling to the office of high priest, and he fulfilled it. He discharged that office perfectly, completely. He perfected the office of high priest. He has been made perfect forever as the high priest in that he fulfilled the office perfectly through his life, his obedience, his suffering, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his exaltation, and his ongoing intercession for us. There is no other high priest who can perfect the people of God, for he alone is the high priest on the basis of an indestructible life. There is no other high priest who can be our surety, our guarantor, our security, for he alone received the eternal promise from the Father to be our high priest. There is no other high priest who can permanently mediate and intercede between God and man, for he alone lives forever. There is no other high priest who can offer a sacrifice once for all, for he alone can offer himself as an atoning sacrifice. Jesus is the high priest you need. There is no other high priest who can carry us into heaven, behind the veil, where God dwells, and who can anchor us securely there, for he alone has walked out of his grave. He alone is the founder and perfecter of our faith. He alone is our forerunner, who is exalted above the heavens. See, Jesus is the high priest you need. This is your high priest, Sovereign Grace. This is your high priest. He is the high priest you need. He is the high priest who answers everything you need for reconciliation with God, for union and communion with God. I stress this because at the end of the day, as really Ian spoke about last week, what we need more than we need anything else is the blessing, the happiness of knowing the Lord, of communing with the Lord, of being united to the Lord. That was lost at the fall, and it's only restored by Jesus Christ, our great high priest. He is the one who restores that. Let us look to him. Let me pray. Father, we give thanks for your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. We know that he is the high priest we need, the one who will unite us to you and bring us into communion with you through his mediatorial work on our behalf. We are thankful that you promised before the foundation of the world 
that he is high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. That you began to reveal his coming as early as our fall in Genesis 3.15. That you through types and shadows, promises, covenants, continued to reveal to us to point us forward to this high priest. The high priest who himself would make atonement for our sins by offering up himself, who would perfect the office of the priest. We give you thanks for him. We pray that we would look to him, that we would know that our hearts truly are restless until we find our rest in you and that Jesus is the one who delivers us that rest in you. May we look to him and trust him. In Jesus' name, amen.